Okay. So, uh, a warm welcome to you if you've joined us as we've been worshiping the Lord together. Uh, my name's Paul, and uh, it's just a real privilege to get together, isn't it, every Sunday and get to share our lives and get to share what the Bible teaches and all that good stuff. I, I kind of thought towards the end of the worship, I thought we, we don't always do it, we sometimes do this, but I kind of, I thought that this morning we should just um, appreciate the guys that lead us in our worship. They come eight o'clock every Sunday morning. Uh, there's a lot to set up. And uh, so I wonder, would you just join me and just appreciate them? That would be great. And uh, not, not only them, but um, it's exam season. The, the, the funny thing was, I noticed this morning, over here is on the whiteboard, is centre number 71419. That's the I used to be a teacher here, for those of you who don't know. And I used to be a PE teacher here. And it was the PE exam on Friday. And I had no role in that whatsoever. <laughs> Gutted. And um, so that's that. Um, why am I saying that? Yeah, I'm saying that because it's exam season. You'll notice there's loads of tables uh, at the back there. And there's a whole crowd of guys that come in here and they clear all of this place. There's about 90 or 100 desks or so. And at the end of the service, they're going to have to put it all back the way it was so that there's exams for tomorrow. So there's lots of people involved there. There will be probably 10, 11, 12 grown-ups and a number of teenagers there in our different children's rooms right now serving and uh, getting stuck in imparting brilliant stuff with our children, which is fantastic. Straight after the service, uh, the welcome team, they'll continue to smile and be nice to us, hopefully. And, uh, and then there's a whole cafe team. They'll be serving us tea, coffee, donuts. So the point I'm making is there's a lot of people that they give of themselves. Many of you are part of those teams and we appreciate you too. Uh, but I thought, wouldn't it be a bit of fun today? So at the end of the service, if you see anyone who's serving or helped out, um, why don't you give them a hug? Let's have, let's have appreciate the team. That, now, especially, especially the ones on the kids' team, because you'll notice them. Not only will they be wearing a brightly colored T-shirt, but they'll look absolutely bedraggled in their faces, and they'll look like they need the coffee first, and they're usually the ones that get the coffee last, okay? So uh, that would be really brilliant if we did something nice to sort of say thanks. That would be tremendous. Uh, you join us, we're in Nehemiah 6 uh, today. I, I happened to mention last week we might be drawing, we would be drawing it to a close today. And uh, due to the size that were received during, the, uh, during that response, we've decided to give it a crack at finishing the whole of Nehemiah between now and the summertime. So this is the plan. We're going to do three chapters today. I'm not joking. Um, not all of them. Not all of it. We're going to take snippets from chapters six, seven, and eight. Uh, next week is Debbie. Uh, she won't be continuing in Nehemiah. The week after, Johnny Graham is going to have a stab at, at tackling uh, Nehemiah 9 and 10. Then the week after that is our baptism Sunday. The week after that, Chantelle is going to wrap it up and she's going to cover 11, 12 and 13. So that's our best attempt using the weeks that we have available of trying to sew up what has been a fabulous, what is a fabulous book and I hope has been a good journey uh, for us as a church community and for you as individuals who've been uh, engaging with this stuff or listening to this online. 
Um, Nehemiah, the story so far, he's, uh, he's traveled to Jerusalem. His intention was to rebuild the walls, to establish a sense of dignity and pride and protection for the people there. He's a man after God's heart. He leads with brilliant uh, strategy and planning. He involves people. He recruits them, casts vision, gets them into action. And they've been doing a great job rebuilding these broken walls. Nehemiah is not afraid to deal with uh, difficult situations and where the conflict arises. He's had to deal with the threats of surrounding uh, people and surrounding nations. And he had to deal with a situation where there was potential fallout amongst the Jewish people themselves as the richer Jews were uh, taking advantage of those who are poorer. So that's the story so far. And uh, so we're diving, we're into chapter 6. And uh, here we go. And I hope the words will come. Ah, super dupes. Now, and we're, we're just going to take snippets uh, from these three chapters. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, uh, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time, I had not set the doors in the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come. Let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Oh no. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Then... The fifth time, Sambalat sent his assistant to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. Therefore, you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is, a, there is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us. Thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. And it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Chapter 6 details the last attempts of uh, his opponents, the people who were leading uh, the nations, trying to revolt against the Jews, trying to prevent the rebuilding of the walls. And this is like the last chapter where we see intimidation, where we see uh, opposition or what we could deem warfare or spiritual warfare towards the people of God. And... Um, and he tries, Sambalat tries a couple of things. He writes to them on four occasions um, saying, come, let's meet outside of the walls. And basically what he's trying to do is entice him to come outside of the protection of the walls to this nearby village, this nearby place where they're going to do him over. And he's wise to that. He realizes he's like, mm, not going to choose that one. So <clears throat> on the fifth invitation, he sends his assistant with this message Basically making up a story. It's a complete lie. It's a story basically saying, <clears throat> you've appointed prophets to actually say that you're now going to be king. Now, Nehemiah had no intention of being king whatsoever. <clears throat> he was appointed as governor. 
but he had no intention of being uh, their king. And they're saying, the word's going to get out, and the king, Artaxerxes, the man who sent him and approved him to actually return, is going to get wind of this, he's going to get word of this, and then you're going to be in big trouble. So he makes up a story, complete and utter lie, in order to, again, try and intimidate and try and uh, take away from uh, what they were trying to do. How does Nehemiah respond? Like he's consistently done in the past, in the stories that we've looked at over the previous few weeks, he is not intimidated, he stands his ground, he speaks the truth, and he prays. Nothing like what you are saying is happening, you're making up in your head, They were trying to frighten me. He saw their plan and he prayed, now strengthen my hands. The enemy. I was having a conversation with someone during the week about this, about him. Not him, him the enemy, him. It, it, It exists, is real and is out to rob, kill and destroy. And uh, is very aware of who we are, very aware and will seek to do anything to disrupt our lives. And very often, what he does is he's much more subtle than this approach. This approach in the story is like blatantly obvious. It's a made-up story. You see right through it. But the enemy often comes and he takes uh, things about us and half-truths. And he twists it and he turns it in our heads and in the minds of other people. And so before we know it, if we begin to actually believe in the lies that the enemy is speaking to us usually in our heads and we let it mull over and chew over we begin believing and making agreement with the enemy in something that isn't true but it's it's usually something that's sort of real and sort of true does that sort of make sense it's not like some pie in the sky made up thing it's something that's about us And that's what he seeks to do. And it's important that we go to Jesus in those places. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And in those situations, when we're we're posed with these thoughts or people are saying things, we need to go to Jesus and say, reveal to me the truth. I want to know the truth. Because when we know the truth, what does it do? It sets us free. So the wall, uh, we, we, going on, chapter 6, uh, verse 15, verses 16. The wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. 52 days to rebuild the wall. We're not talking about some you know, little wall at the you know, back of your garden. We're talking about ancient walls, big high things, big stone wide things to protect an ancient city. 52 days it took. 52 days ago was the 31st of March. Um, in today, from today, going back 52 days, to help put it in some context, uh, 49 days ago, or seven Sundays ago, was when Johnny Graham spoke, and that was then. So that gives you some sort of, if you were there when he spoke, you would remember, oh yeah, I remember that. 
that's the kind of time frame that we're talking about that these walls were uh, rebuilt in. The surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their self-confidence. They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. They realize, my goodness, we're in trouble here. There is no way humanly possible, despite Nehemiah being a genius in terms of his strategic leadership and getting the right people on board, it was due to the help of their God. And they begin to feel slightly intimidated themselves. And their own confidence in themselves begins to diminish. Folks, he is on our side. He's on our team. We're on his team. It's like Cristiano Ronaldo playing for Carrick Rangers. It's like Ruan Pinar playing for Ballyclare. That's for you and Sergi and, and Hillis boys, by the way. Glad you appreciated that. It's in the notes. It's like Catherine Jenkins singing in the Belfast Community Gospel Choir. That was for the creatives amongst us. No? Is it not really like that? Is it not the same? Oh. Maybe you should read my sermons before I do them. The point is, he's on our team. He's on our side. He's our rock. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. He's our rescuer. He's our redeemer. And he's on our side. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, uh, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, make them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written here. Nehemiah 7 acts as a pivot point in the whole story. There are 13 chapters. The first six chapters are all about rebuilding a wall and rebuilding the city. The rest of the chapters from Nehemiah 7 right the way through to 13 is about God rebuilding them as a nation. And restoring them as a people. And a people unto himself, Yahweh. Nehemiah appoints, first of all, the first appointments that he makes is to the gatekeepers to open and close the gates, to the musicians who are the worship leaders, and to the Levites who are the priests. The very first appointments are those to control who can come in and who can go out of the city. And the other appointments that he makes are the worship leaders and the guys who are going to teach. Why? Because they're the ones who are going to try and keep the people of God on track, on task. 
placing before the people the ones who are going to lead them into right relationship with God. The next appointment Nehemiah makes is his brother. He puts his brother in charge of the city. His brother is the one, if you remember from the first chapter, is the one who travels 800 miles to Susa to tell Nehemiah, this is the state of Jerusalem. His brother is appointed because he is a man of integrity and he fears God more than most. Genius, good leadership again. Now, the walls are rebuilt, the city is secure. Nehemiah moves on to the next step and that's restoring the buildings and the houses inside because all he's done up until this point is actually rebuilt the wall. But everything inside it, all the houses, they're just you know, derelict and they need to be rebuilt and restored as well. And uh, so I love this. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, the common people for registration by families. Let's just pause for a moment. He put it on my heart. This is Nehemiah speaking. It was his job, his calling, his mandate. And we've spoken about this many times before. We're talking about this in our 20s life group on Monday nights. We're talking about this in our life group on Wednesday nights as well. And it's like, what has God put in your heart? What has he placed there? What is it that he's spoken to you about? What has he called you to? And the thing, again, we've said this before, but this is to the benefit of those of you who are our guests. One of the many things that we just love about the privilege and the honor it is to lead this church is seeing what you're made for and equipping you and giving you permission to step into the very things that God has for you. To do the very things that God has placed on your heart. It would have been so easy for Nehemiah at this point. He's built the walls. He's come back. He's done the job. He could have gone back to Susa and served wine to the king the rest of his days. He could have gone west to the Med and had a week in the sun. He could have gone south down towards the border of Egypt. And he could have gone snorkeling in the Red Sea. But he doesn't. He stays there because the next thing is, not only have I come to rebuild the walls, I've come to rebuild dignity and community. The people of God can live here and worship here. And so they call together the accounts of all of the individuals who were there. And the whole company numbered 42,360 besides there 7,337 male and female slaves they had 245 uh, mules no male I've lost it I've jumped there and they had the same number of bloke singers as they had mules what's all that about flip there's a lot of people there I'm not going to read through it one thing's for sure the Jewish people were brilliant at keeping records, weren't they? You know, you read Old Testament before Nehemiah, you read the Old Testament, New Testament after Nehemiah. Many, many accounts. In fact, there's a whole book called Numbers, which is all about numbers of these individuals, how they were counted. It's so, so important. And the thing is that every number 
counts. I do have time to tell my story. So I'm 21, 22. I've got my first job. Um, I'm a youth worker, pastor in a church in a really nice place, a village called Chorleywood. It's very nice. It's in Hertfordshire. And um, it's actually on the Metropolitan Line, on the London Underground. You've seen the London Underground map. If you're looking at it, on the kind of top left, um, it's on the Metropolitan Line, which is kind of the purpley, sort of uh, maroony kind of colour. And um, from there, in my first job, I remember it was, I started at the beginning of September. I think it was the 30th of September. It's so vivid in my mind because of the story that I'm about to tell you. The suspense is building. Um, we, I took a trip. It was my first trip, right? And I took 20 people uh, to the theatre, which, if you know me, is an absolute joke because I hate the theatre. <laughs> so, and, I, and I was taking all these teenagers on this trip. I'm thinking, Flevinette, they were well cultured. I can't imagine too many of our teenagers wanting to go to the theatre, but there you go. I'm sure you girls would, by the way. I knew you'd be offended. I knew you'd actually be offended by that. I was actually thinking of Harry, to be fair, <laughs> when, I was, when I was thinking about this. So, um, so we're, taking, we're on a train. From Chorleywood, you're all going to look, I know you are, those of you who like the maps, you're going to get the map out later, you're going to, oh look at that. So we got on Chorleywood, it was a direct train all the way, all the way east to a place called Farringdon, we got off, we went to the theatre, it was all very nice, blah de blah blah blah. We watched the thing, I couldn't tell you a word of it, it was weird. We got on the plane, on the plane, (laughs) I'm losing the plot, we got on the train and we were coming back. Now, I think in the minds of everyone there, they were thinking, well, it only took one train to get here. It's only going to take one train to get back. But, oh, no, we had to change at Baker Street, which is quite, a, I think it connects with the Jubilee line, maybe the Bakerloo line. So there's, there's the, you had to change there. So we got off, and we kind of scuttled off, and we got onto the next platform. We're waiting for the next train back to Chorleywood. And I'm doing the classic thing that a teacher or anyone, you're doing the old head count. 17, 18, 19. Right, 17, 18, 19. Right, stand still, everyone. Stop talking. 17, 18, 19. And it just dawns on me. I'm like, oh, no. We are missing someone. We are. And, I'm, and we're like, who are we missing? Who are we missing? Naomi Trevor. Where's Naomi? Where's Naomi? Now, this is pre-mobile phone era. So it's not like, well, who's got her number? Give her a quick buzz. So she's lost. We've, I've left her in London. She's 15. And I'm only in the job a month. It's so bad. It's so bad. And everything's going through my mind. Long story short, um, she only realized two stops later. Basically, she, she was reading something. She found a, a magazine or something like that. She was reading it. She hadn't seen us all pile off the train. And that's why she'd stayed on it. It took her two stops later before she realized, where is everyone? It must have been terrifying for her. She got off. She had a bit of money. She used a pay phone. That was in the old days. You know, you went to a phone, you put some money in. And, um, and uh, she made a phone call home. Dad had, uh, had a dinner party. He'd had a couple of glasses of wine. And he couldn't drive. So elder daughter, who's 19, drives with Dave, Dad, uh, navigating all the way into central London. Bless her. She was so scared. 
You know those photo booths that you sit in with a curtain? She sat in one of those photo booths waiting for her mum. I know you're all going, ah. I was like, ah. <laughs> Flip. Bit of self-indulgence. What's the point? Uh, you're looking forward to the point? <laughs> Every life counts. Every life matters to him. Every life Every one of them. And they're all recorded here in this part of the story. But they're all recorded here. And every single person in the room, every single person, when they do the the population census, that's the word, of character, it's important. Numbers matter because numbers represent people and people's lives. Do we want a break? <laughs> I feel like a break. Are we good to keep going? Are we? Okay. I, I don't want to torture um, Torture. Come to church, get tortured. Um, then everyone gets the chance uh, to make a contribution to the restoration of the city. They take up an offering, basically. And it's detailed as well uh, in this. It's still there. Um, the governor gave to the treasury thousand barracks of gold and bowls and garments and then some of the heads of the family they gave to the treasury and together was 20,000 and so on and then the total given by the rest of the people was that as well and this is an offering an offering a financial offering is taken up for the continuation of the restoration of the city now what I love about this is the governor is mentioned who's the governor Nehemiah but Nehemiah is not named now Ezra is probably the guy that wrote the book, but, and I don't know, I can't be sure. These are one of the things that when you speak, you can be sure on some things, and then there's other things you kind of speculate and you kind of think, well, that could be it. This could be it, okay? It could be just simply discretion, not, ah, oh, Nehemiah, isn't he just amazing that he did this? It was listed, is named as the governor. He was the one who had given of his own financial money first and then the heads of the families of the households gave second and then the rest of the people had an opportunity to give too where in the last bit you'll be relieved to know where chapter 8 um, I'm going I'm to have to read it I'm sorry um, at the very end of chapter 7. When the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their towns. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the Lord, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the Lord, stood on the high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood a number of people, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them, and he opened it. The people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. 
And then they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, all of those folks, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving them meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priests, and the teacher of the law, the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's so much that's significant about this passage. And I would encourage you greatly to go read uh, it for yourself and read around it for yourself. Here are just a few highlights. Time has passed. People have settled in the surrounding villages outside of the walls. And on this particular day, it's like the people have been gathered. It's like people coming from Sunnylands or from Victoria Woodburn. They've come to this one place, to the city centre, maybe down near the castle or something like that. They come together into the square before the water gate. Do you remember the significance of the water gate from two or three weeks ago? The water gate was the word of God. The water represents uh, the word of God. And it's in this place, inside this part of the city, that Ezra the scribe, the priest, the teacher of the law, reads from the book of Moses. He opens the book. The people stand up and they praise the Lord and they fall with their faces down to the ground and they worship. This is a holy moment. This is an awesome moment. They have uh, returned from exile, from captivity, where they were slaves. They have returned to the city. It has been rebuilt. It has been restored. And now the law is spoken to them. The word is taught to them. And they become part of the story. They've become part of the story from the past. When Yahweh, when he comes, when he comes to Mount Sinai and he visits his people and he says, I will be your people. I will visit and I will come and I will dwell amongst you. And in order for us to have right relationship, here's just a few things to live your lives by. It was called the law. And the law wasn't necessarily law as in do this, don't do that. Do It was about re- remaining in right relationship. And the people of God strayed from the law. And they had rebelled against God. And it was because of their own undoing, because of their sinful nature, that they got caught up in the trouble in the first place. And that's what led to them being captured and taken into exile. And they realize we're part of the story. We have turned. Repentance doesn't mean just saying sorry. It means physically turning and going a different way, a different direction. And they're restored here in the, in the city, the holy city. And as the law is read to them, they fall face down in worship. And they begin to weep and they begin to mourn. And we don't exactly know why, except for they have lost something. But they have been restored. They have rebelled and they were taken away, but they have been redeemed. And this is the story, folks. This is the story. This, this was the story then, which is hundreds of years before Jesus even came. 
And hundreds of years after Jesus has come, it's still our story. It's our story where God comes to his broken people, those who've rebelled, those that stuff has happened to, and he rescues us and he redeems us. It's just incredible. It's just amazing. It's just wonderful. It's the gospel. It is the good news that we have experienced, that we get to share and we get to give away. And yet, Nehemiah and Ezra, they, in, in amongst the weeping and the grief, they do something extraordinary. You would, I would have thought there's a time to weep and there's a time to grieve loss. Absolutely, it's appropriate and right in circumstances. But they tell them, don't do that. Don't do that today. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those of nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that one of the most quoted verses in the Bible? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And there's something absolutely incredible and amazing about the joy of the Lord that comes to us, often in times of grief, often in times where it's difficult, often in times where it's uncertain, and yet we can't explain it. We could be in the middle of a storm, we could be deep in the valley, no matter what, but when we open our lives and we surrender our lives and we say, God, I trust you with everything, the joy of the Lord comes. And it's our strength. And it's what gives us what we need for that season, for that time. So Nehemiah and Ezra, as they're leading their people, they say, don't mourn at this time, in this moment. A time's coming, it's the next chapter, when that stuff happens. But today, go and have sweet drinks, choice foods. It's party time. Let's celebrate. And folks, I, I, I love it. that That's part and parcel of our DNA. It's part and parcel of who we are as a people and uh, as, as a church that we get to celebrate, we get a party. I am going to absolutely love it in a two, three weeks' time when we baptize some of you folks. It is the most incredible privilege to do. It's the most incredible celebration to celebrate with you in that moment. The reason we have a barbecue afterwards is to celebrate together. It's party time. And the weather is due to be really good this year. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. The Lord has spoken. <clears throat> I nearly crossed my fingers. That would be really bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm done. Um, why don't we come and get ourselves... We're going to worship the Lord, and then we're going to pray. And then we're done. As the guys come forwards, let's stand together.